This week, we dove into the future of venture capital. For an industry that's singularly focused on disruptive innovation, venture capital has largely stayed out of the spotlight from new challengers and disruptors. Until now. It's why I was so excited to chat with Avalok Kohli, CEO at Angelus Venture, on the future of VC, opportunities for innovation in the system, and the implications for expanding entrepreneurship. Angelus Venture is focused on answering the question, what is possible if software played a bigger role in how we financed companies? Avlok brought a deep first principles perspective to the show, and we touched on a number of topics. The importance of expanding the pie versus zero-sum thinking, how a venture fund would be built today if it was on the rails of software versus traditional service guilds, how the internet gives creators infinite leverage, and why we're in the bottom of the first inning for technology. Avlok, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you. Excited to, excited to be here. Yeah, look, really excited to have you on the show today uh, to dive deep into Angelus Venture, you know, just the philosophy of how you think about the ecosystem and, of course, rolling funds, right? The product that's all the buzz in, in tech right now. But before we dive in, let's kick off a little bit by giving our listeners a bit more perspective on your background. Yeah, for sure. So I'll, I'll do a quick, <clears throat> a quick uh, version of my background. Um, I was actually uh, born, born in the Middle East and uh, lived there for a few years. Uh, moved to India, and then I moved to Canada for uh, high school and university. Uh, and then after that, uh, I went to uh, San Francisco in 2008 after I graduated university. And uh, once in San Francisco, I actually uh, came there right when the financial crisis hit. I actually remember uh, reading the Sequoia memo, RIP, good times. Uh, that's when I started my, my, my career in tech. Um, I spent uh, the first few years uh, working as an engineer at different startups. One of them was acquired by StubHub. Another one uh, became the uh, world's largest uh, uh, doctor's network now. And then from there, I caught the bug, uh, <clears throat> decided to tinker and, and look at starting uh, a few different uh, businesses and companies. I started one in 2014, uh, which was called FastFight. It was in the food delivery uh, uh, space. And the premise of it was to deliver the food uh, in seven minutes versus the 80 minute delivery time at the time. Uh, we were quickly acquired by Square where I spent two and a half years as a director. This was pre-IPO and uh, amazing experience all around. And I left Square in uh, mid 2017, started another company, also in logistics space, ran that for a year and a half and uh, wrapped up an acquisition of that one in January of 2019. Um, at the time, I uh, decided to step back from operating. I'd been operating for quite a long time and uh, took some time off. And around that time, Naval, who'd been a previous investor uh, of mine, had uh, asked me to consider stepping in at Angelist uh, specifically to <clears throat> lead the venture business. Uh, that actually brings me to today. I formally accepted the role uh, July last year. And now I've been in this role as CEO of Angelus Venture for a little bit over a year and a half. I want to dive into your your background from the Square times. Um, you know, Square, just like Stripe to me, is, is always one of the best when it comes to applying some of the frameworks and philosophies on, you know, how they've thought through finance and, and its applicability to other products. And there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels outside in of look from my vantage point between the way Square, you know, thinks about its products and the place in the ecosystem and and similarly, how Angelus Venture thinks about it, itself and its parallel ecosystem. What were your What were your biggest lessons you picked up from your time at Square? Mm. Yeah, I would say uh, there are three big lessons. Uh, first one is uh, called the innovation stack. Uh, this is actually a term and, and a book that was written by one of the founders of Square, Jim McKelvey. 
Uh, I would highly recommend folks go read it. Uh, basically, the idea behind <clears throat> this is uh, innovation really comes from reducing steps. Uh, when you reduce steps to do something, you remove friction. Uh, so for example, uh, for Square, when they started, they reduced the number of steps it would take for someone to start accepting payments. Uh, in the old world, you'd have to call up a company, you'd have to go through all these paper contracts, and then you'd pay an arm and a leg just to start start accepting credit card payments. And Income Square <clears throat> makes it really simple. You fill out a form, and then boom, you can start accepting payments. You just get a dongle, and you're good to go. And so Innovation Stack was definitely a big, uh, one of my uh, three big takeaways from Square, that when you reduce steps, you remove friction, that is innovation. And then what happens is it creates this, uh, uh, this effect all the way through the stack that you're now taking those steps that you removed and now you're going to use innovation to improve on that. So for example, Square by eliminating steps uh, in the funnel uh, for someone to start accepting payments took on the uh, workload to then go figure out how to uh, actually go combat fraud and how to go, <clears throat> how to go combat chargebacks uh, and that's really where the innovation came in. Second big one, the importance of self-serve. I can't underscore how important this is. Uh, self-serve, especially uh, especially when you're serving consumers or small businesses or even mid-sized businesses is everything. In fact, I think self-serve was such a key strategic uh, uh, um, uh, move for Square early on that when COVID hit and their business effectively got upended, they came, they're coming out of it because they have self-serve software. Uh, most folks went from uh, physical uh, commerce to digital commerce and delivery because Square has these amazing self-serve tools for the businesses to be able to evolve. Uh, so self-serve was the other big one and the importance of it. And then the last one is uh, a platform approach to building products. And this really is uh, thinking deeply about how uh, a product that's working really well within the business can actually then impact uh, or be a feeder or drive value to another adjacent product that you could go build out for your customers. And it's not always obvious, but uh, I really saw the power of being able to think that way. Uh, so for example, we're starting to see uh, a lot of this happen with Cash App. Uh, Cash App at first was a consumer product that was being built very separately in the company and still is. There's a great team around it. And now they're starting to find ways in which to connect the product. So with uh, Square's payroll uh, product, they're saying, get your money instantly uh, if you have Cash App and it's an option in there. Um, and they're finding all these other hooks and in, uh, in, in ways that you can actually help distribute another product. Square Capital is another example. Uh, embedded within the uh, payments product is the ability for businesses to get a loan using Square Capital. So there really is this power in thinking about um, uh, building products through a platform approach where one product actually strengthens another product, which strengthens another product. And now for your customers, you're delivering a ton of value. They can just come to you for everything versus, versus having to piecemeal it. They get something from you, something from another business. They can just come to you and get everything in one place. I really like that approach of thinking through the lessons from those three perspectives, right? The innovation stack, self-serve, and then the platform approach to building products. Because I think a lot about that when I think in your current role and what Angelus Venture is doing, I think there's a lot of parallels. So I'd, I'd love a look, a look for you to take a, you know, to take a pass at thinking, um, you know, providing us with a perspective on how you think about that comparison between some of those elements you just listed out from Square 
and and the way you're approaching your role at AngelList Venture. Yeah, there are definitely <clears throat> there are definitely a lot of parallels. Um, in fact, when I was originally uh, thinking about uh, taking the role and uh, looking into the venture business, uh, what really excited me uh, were the parallels that I saw actually between uh, Square and Angelus Venture and, and the actual characteristics of it. And so we, we can take each one and talk about how I see it apply at Angelus Ventures. So innovation stack, reducing the numbers. Uh, so we do this in spades because when a GP comes to us to start their venture fund, uh, we truly make it a tap a button, get a venture fund experience. We've actually taken all of the headaches all the way from the legal documents to the banking infrastructure, to the accounting, to the software, to everything. We've packaged it all up into a simple, to, a simple product that they can use. And all they really need to do is uh, fill out an intake form and they have a fund. We'll even set up the management company, which is usually the company that's, uh, that gets the, uh, the fees and the carry uh, from a venture fund. So it, we do apply the innovation stack when it comes to setting up, uh, setting up a syndicate or a traditional fund or a rolling fund. Uh, and in, uh, in exchange for that, uh, what we take on is complexity, of course, on the other side that we have to go solve uh, through software, which is what we're really, really good at. Uh, so that's how we apply the innovation stack at Angelus Venture. For self-serve, uh, this actually, uh, we're in the process of doing, we are looking at all the products and they're very quickly uh, becoming more and more self-serve where uh, the GPs can come in, enter some information, and we're able to spin things up much, much faster. Uh, so self-serve for us is a focus and we're making progress on this pretty, pretty quickly. And then the last one, the platform approach to building products. This is something that has really come together uh, this year and uh, we're going to see a lot more uh, folks are going to see a lot more we're going to share publicly next year. Um, but just the ability uh, to look at adjacent products um, and start building out adjacent products that are feeders or uh, drive more value. So for example, rolling funds, which we launched earlier this year, was really uh, something that we were able to uniquely do because we had all of the infrastructure uh, to be able to do it. And, uh, you know, we went from idea to first uh, beta launch uh, in three months. It was extremely fast. And we were able to do that because we were able to repurpose a lot of the different uh, infrastructure that we had built. And it really is a feeder uh, into syndicates. So if someone comes in, starts a rolling fund, uh, then they're also going to uh, start many, many more syndicates. And we're actually seeing all of this. We're seeing the entire business grow right now. Um, then of course, we have our liquidity product, which we publicly announced, um, similar thing. Uh, we're very uniquely suited to be able to do that. And it really does act as a feeder. Uh, our traditional funds and rolling funds act, act as a feeder to the liquidity product. And then, of course, we are exploring um, you know, different products that we can provide to startups, uh, something that we can uniquely do and we're uniquely suited to do. And we're able to use our funds business to be able to provide distribution for the startup business. Uh, so we are applying the platform approach in terms of how we pick and select what products we're going to build and put in our portfolio and serve our customers. How do you, and maybe for the benefit of our listeners, if we can take a step back, let's talk about those three products, right? Syndicates, traditional mm -hmm. funds, <clears throat> and now rolling funds. I want you to talk through the chronology of those products, because I think there's an interesting story of even though they are distinct products, right? They aren't unrelated exactly in the way you were just describing from a platform perspective. There's, there's also a story 
of kind of unbundling and rebundling that that fits in as a consistent theme, you know, through the chronology of those products. So let's take a step back. We're going to go into rolling funds pretty deeply, but let's let's take a step back on just what are those three products at uh, Angelus Venture and, and how did they come about in the sequence that they came about? Yeah, so we, we can go through uh, uh, a little journey through time, if, if you will. Um, <clears throat> so where Angelus started, uh, overall, Angelus started with a simple premise, which was to serve the founder. And founders ultimately have three problems. Uh, they have to raise capital, they have to hire great talent, and then they have to find customers. Over the years, Angelist uh, built uh, different three different businesses to go tackle each of these problems. We have Angelist Venture for capital, we have Angelist Talent for hiring, and then we have Product Hunt for finding customers, which Angelist actually acquired uh, a few years ago. And with Angelist Venture and tackling the capital problem, uh, rather than going after the founder investor matching problem, uh, we looked at how do we actually uh, introduce more investors into the ecosystem? Because that was the best way to solve the problem for startups. Um, we wanted to expand the funnel uh, so that there are many more VCs in the industry so that founders have more people to choose from. For example, when I, uh, when, when I was fundraising many, many years ago for my first company, uh, there were literally 25 people. I think I have a spreadsheet somewhere. There are 25 people on that list of people that would actually invest in the early stages. Um, and today that list is, uh, I think it must be at least 600 to 800 people on that list. Um, and uh, a very large portion of them are people that we actually support on Angelist Venture. Uh, so we've been directly responsible for increasing the number of VCs in the ecosystem. Now, the way we did that was in 2013, we launched uh, syndicates. And syndicates are single investment funds. What this enabled was it enabled existing investors, existing angels to invest 25,000, 50,000 in the company and then syndicate uh, in a, a larger allocation with their friends or their colleagues uh, and their network. So what they could say to a founder is they could say, I'm excited, I'd love to participate. I'm gonna put 50,000 of my own capital and hey, let me syndicate the other 450,000 with my network and now the total check size ends up being uh, $500,000. It was totally unique, new, uh, and, and just took the industry by storm back then. Um, and for the founder, what this really meant was less time fundraising. Uh, rather than having to string together 10, $50,000 checks, they could get a single $500,000 check uh, from a great investor that they wanna work with. And it really worked out for the investor and their network because they got access to this investor's deal flow. So that's syndicates. A few years later, uh, we launched traditional funds. Now, traditional venture funds had always been around. That in and of itself wasn't new, but it's how we built it that was new and what it enabled that was new. Most traditional venture funds, uh, the work are, is usually done by people, the accounting, the back office, all of it. And the cost necessary to stand up a traditional venture fund back in the day was in the order of half a million to a million dollars. What this meant was you needed to go raise a minimum fund size of 10 million and above. Now, what first time fund manager is gonna be able to go raise a $10 million uh, fund and above? The only path to doing so would be to join a venture firm and continue uh, to, uh, to uh, get an investing track record and then maybe over time, 
you build the relationships with the institutional LPs that can then uh, provide an anchor check into your fund. And so that was the world before. In comes AngelList Venture, uh, builds out traditional funds, but then compresses the cost of what it would take to run a traditional fund. Because we've built all of the software, the full stack is all built through software. So we were able to compress the cost of what it took to run a venture fund. And now we could run half a million dollar fund, a million dollar fund, and that's much easier for a uh, GP to go raise. They don't need to go raise uh, uh, or get an anchor of five or 10 million uh, to get started. They can start stringing together checks, um, uh, you know, 50, $100,000 checks from um, high net worth individuals, uh, which ends up being a lot easier than trying to get an institution to take a bet on a first time manager. So that brought a lot more operators into the venture industry, that innovation of being able to compress the cost. And we saw an explosion of traditional funds come online. Then uh, earlier this year, we launched rolling funds. And rolling funds really went right to the heart of the problem of raising capital. Raising capital for a fund, for a traditional fund, is, uh, is really hard because you go through this big bang fundraise process. You need to raise all of the capital up front, and then you lock your fund down for new capital, and then you go through a process to deploy the capital. That is how all traditional fundraising is done today. Um, but what we observed was that process of raising everything up front, um, uh, we really asked the question, why is that? Why do you have to raise all the capital up front? Because it just leads to a very stressful moment um, uh, or experience for the GPs. In fact, the best time to raise capital is when uh, your portfolio has had a markup. But in a traditional fund, that is the time where you can't raise capital because if an LP invests in it, they actually get exposure to the markup, which is unfair to your earlier LPs. And so we really looked at it and we realized that uh, the traditional fund structure, which is only a few decades old, was actually built in a world before software. So there were a bunch of constraints that were assumed where people are doing all of the back office accounting work, uh, legal work. Well, we're in an age uh, post software. So we asked, what would a venture fund look like if it was built through software? And that's where rolling funds came in. So rolling funds are a venture fund structure that's built in the age of software. That is what a venture fund structure would have looked like if software existed a few decades ago. And with a rolling fund, what we have are two big, uh, uh, two big uh, benefits. One is it's an always open fund. So you can accept capital anytime, anytime. And you can now generally solicit and publicly fundraise. So those two uh, benefits ended up providing this 100x improvement on a traditional fund structure, which is why we're seeing such a massive uptick in folks uh, uh, using and adopting rolling funds. And to be clear, rolling funds uh, were, were started, branded, uh, we own the trademark, everything all within Angelus Venture. So it never existed um, before we actually put it all together. So it's a it's what a venture fund structure would have looked like if it was built in the age of software. I like that a lot. You've said previously that you know, rolling funds bring a high, high resolution fundraising to, to venture, kind of the same way that safes brought a high resolution funding uh, structure to startups. I, I want to talk, I want to pull that, pull a thread on one of the last things you said, which was, um, you know, one of the big breakthroughs in enabling rolling funds and really making this work 
is, is what's gone on with the public solicitation regulation, the 506C. You know, most, most folks listening won't know the intricacies necessarily of that regulation, um, you know, and or in general, the framework on accreditation. But I want you to talk through that just at a high level and why that's such an unlock for the rolling fund concept to work. Yeah, uh, happy, happy to. So there are two regulations um, from the SEC around raising capital for funds. Uh, there is the 506B and 506C. 506B basically says if you're not, if you're raising capital uh, and you're not generally soliciting, um, then self-accreditation works. So what that means is an investor can say, yes, I have, uh, you know, I, 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 I have the assets that I claim I have, you can trust me. And the SEC says, great, that's okay for us because um, you're, you know, you're going through your network, you're not publicly talking about this. 506C says, um, if you're going to generally solicit, then we'll allow it if you take on the burden and the work to verify that the investor actually says they have the assets they say they do or their net worth that they say they do. So it's really a question of uh, who takes on the burden. One, 506B says uh, the investor themselves says, I'm self-accrediting, which means trust me. And uh, 506C says, uh, the investor says, trust me. And then uh, you say, great, prove it, right? So that's really the, the, the difference between the two. 506C was actually written into the law or written into regulation in, um, in 2013. Angelus was actually part of writing it, which is why we knew it existed and we were very aware of it. And, you know, we, we, we built it, we built the flow uh, in, in terms of how you do 506C accreditation into our product. But it never really, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a killer feature, right, for, uh, for traditional funds. And primarily because with a traditional fund, what happens is you go to raise capital, but you do it in a big bang way, and then you shut down the uh, fund for new capital, which means the benefit you're going to get out of generally soliciting is very time constrained, um, meaning you only get uh, maybe a few months, uh, 18 months of benefit from a general solicitation, but then after that, it's gone. Um, on top of that, most lawyers and law firms, again, remember people, mo people are actually usually doing the work uh, for most traditional funds, uh, like the service providers. And most folks actually don't want to take on that risk to go verify that the investor has the assets that they say they do. Um, now, the reason why 506C ended up being a, a game changer for rolling funds is really because now the incentives are aligned. Your fund is always open for capital. Not only that, uh, you can now publicly talk about it, which means uh, you now get the full benefit of, uh, of, being, uh, of general solicitation and you get the full benefit of being able to uh, talk about it and taking on the burden of verifying that all the investors say uh, are who they say they are in terms of having the assets. And so what we did was we just took that and we bundled it into the rolling funds. And so for the fund manager, they don't even need to worry about it. We handle all of it. It's all a product flow. It's beautifully designed. When an investor comes in to commit to a rolling fund, um, they go through a flow and they have a few different options of how to uh, accredit based on 506 regulation. It's super simple. And then they go through the, the whole thing. So really, uh, the reason it was a big breakthrough for rolling funds and not traditional funds 
is because with rolling funds, now there was an incentive to generally solicit because you could always accept capital. You can always promote your existing portfolio or markups to then attract new capital. And that's, that's why it ended up being the perfect fit for uh, rolling funds. Well, and I think there's two elements there that, especially as an individual, uh, if you're raising a rolling fund, really, you know, park towards your advantage. One is this kind of evergreen structure, right, of look of consistently being open, right, for business, and you can always pull in new folks. Then the other part, though, is, you know, if you've built audience and you've built community, um, you can really spin up a rolling fund and, and, you know, not just the construct or the concept of a rolling fund, but at a fund at meaning, at pretty meaningful scale, uh, quickly and out of the gate. I've, I've had a couple of folks on the, the podcast. I had Sahil on the podcast. Um, Cindy Bai is a good friend. And and they're, you know, they're constructing some of the largest rolling funds for Angelus Venture, you know, pretty much out of the gate. I mean, both of them have, you know, about in the seven to $10 million range committed. And, and to give, you know, our listeners a perspective, you know, with, with venture funds, you typically deploy, you know, at worst on call it a four-year cycle. So, you know, these folks are raising effectively 30, $40 million funds um, out, out of the gate. Yep. It, it's, it's, it is quite, uh, it's quite fascinating, um, how quickly, um, some of these, you know, so, so some of the GPs are able to scale up capital under management. And I think you're absolutely right, uh, in terms of comparing to a four-year deployment cycle. And we're seeing many, many more of these, uh, actually spin up. One of the, uh, one of the things I've been, I've been interested about is kind of hearing the devil's advocate on the rolling fund side, right? And I'm sure this is something you guys debate a ton internally. One, one of the critiques has been uh, this concept of, you know, with the floodgates opening, basically the pot, you know, will simmer over, right? Traditional mechanisms are in place to effectively keep, you know, capital flows in check, not have retail investors rush into, you know, risky paradigms or so. Personally, I, I think it's the opposite. <laughs> I think it's really net positive, right? And I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting parlay also, which is to say the business model fundamentally of things like rolling funds are, are actually quite similar to what we see in community-based products, right? Like things like Substack, OnlyFans, et cetera. And I think the thesis that they really hit under is, you know, individuals basically being able to take their skill set and their brand and just directly monetizing that and providing access candidly to people that might not have had access otherwise, because that's that's such a large part of venture capital and, and investing into startups. Is that how you think about it, or you think about the framing a little bit differently? No, that that that's exactly uh, that's exactly how I think about it. Um, <clears throat> another framing to keep in mind is, uh, in, in you know, in a previous world, uh, you would have folks joining venture funds. The venture funds would have their own, uh, you know, back office provider, legal, and they'd have a bunch of folks internally. To help with operations and all of that. What we've done is we've actually taken all of these different service providers um, that a venture fund would have to stitch together uh, in order to make it all work, and we've combined it into one. And we've built it through software. And so we make it very easy for the fund manager to be able to self-serve and go from there. Um, that is really what we've been able to uh, we've enabled, which allows for a venture fund of one, right? When we've actually taken what used to take six to seven to 10 service providers and a team of people inside a venture firm just to be able to operate because you're operating through people and you turn it into software and it's easy to use software, then you can really truly enable venture fund of one. And that's actually what's going on here. Um, I'll give you a really good example. Uh, uh, Sal and I were actually on a, just on a, um, on a uh, session uh, just the other day 
And we recently launched a feature, uh, and we're always launching features, rolling funds. Um, and this feature uh, allowed Sahil just through a few clicks on his dashboard in the product to be able to say, great, um, I want to set custom terms and I can now do it through code, right? Or sorry, I can just do it through the product. Because what we did was we enabled uh, the software to be able to um, to be able to allow GPs to set custom terms for different LPs if they want to provide custom terms. And it's all done through the product, uh, self-serve. He doesn't need to actually email us to get any of this stuff. Whereas in a previous world, you'd have to go email the lawyer, email the back office provider, and say, hey, for this LP, can you put it in your notes that they have these terms, put it into the legal document, and you would just go through so many steps to make it happen. What we've done is we actually built it in product. So all Silo has to do, and really any rolling fund manager has to do is go into their dashboard and go to a thing that says create custom link, set the terms, and boom, you've got your custom link, you can send the LP. So what we've done is we've taken what would take six to seven to 10 service providers and a team of people inside a venture fund just to support, uh, we've actually taken it, built it in software, and so we can enable the venture fund of one. And that is the broader theme here, and we're seeing this across Substack, and we're seeing it across other types of products where um, these, these platforms, uh, these products are supporting a firm of one, and that firm of one has the brand or has the uh, you know, has the ability to rally a following, rally a group of investors to be able to start investing and grow it over time. And that's really the big theme here that's happening across industries. Uh, and we're doing it in venture with rolling with uh, rolling funds. I think the implications of that kind of concept of one and empowering one gets especially interesting also, because I, I think it takes some of the fundamental adages or the fundamental premises, you know, that exist in venture, for example, and, and start to question them or flip them on their head. So you know, a practical example is there's a pretty age-old adage in venture, which is, you know, there's only X number of venture-backable companies per year, right? And we all we all know the long-tail distribution of, you know, which of those venture, you know, fundable companies ostensibly give, call it 80, 90% of the returns in a space or in a, in a given year. But there is this adage that, you know, there's only X number of venture-backable companies per year. And I wonder if, if the perspective here, right, in terms of kind of both sides of the marketplace of increasing investors, as well as then, you know, by definition, increasing allocation of that investable capital uh, and informing and, and, and really helping, you know, other companies that wouldn't have gotten off the ground get off, is if you guys think about the overarching platform as really expanding the pie versus that traditional adage of basically, it's effectively, you know, a zero sum game. Yeah, great question. Um, I I think it's actually, and we have very strong evidence that it is expanding the pie significantly. The reason I actually pause in answering that is, is because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I was of the opinion many, many years ago that yes, there are only so many great companies. And where I realized that was incorrect was what you're inherently saying by saying there's only so great, only so many great companies is there, is that there's only so much creativity in the world, yeah. and that that creativity and the ability to tap and finance finance that creativity, uh, we've hit those limits. Meaning it's happening equally, and I definitely don't think we're there. Not even close. I think we're just in the early innings of seeing how much creativity there really is there in the world, and how much once we finance it, uh, we're actually going to see an explosion of companies. Um, and uh, and things around the world, we're going to be surprised by it. Almost every single year, I'll, I'll hear someone say, someone's you know who's super smart, I highly respect. Almost every year, I'll hear different forms of, 
all right, we're out of ideas or everything that needed to be mined has been mined from the desktop or the, or the, or mobile and all of that. So I'll hear all of these things and every year we're actually surprised. And, and, and what's fascinating is actually every year we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing even more companies uh, start even right now uh, as COVID was happening and the stock market was melting. Um, uh, you know, everyone was saying, well, we're going to be in a, in a huge freeze a venture for a while is going to be stopped. And then out of nowhere, boom, stock market, at least for tech, takes off. Venture has, I mean, to be honest, has never seen so much activity. There's so much activity, so many great companies, so many great founders. So I actually am of the belief that is, is this is a massive positive sum game. We're in the early innings of what we're seeing. And really what's happening with uh, us driving more VCs into business, putting more VCs into business, having more rolling funds, is you're expanding the actual funnel. And what I really mean by that is, is the following. When you really take all of the GPs in, in, in the world, all the investing par partners that can truly make investing decisions, and then you take all of their time, literally their schedules, and then you map it, you then get an idea of what the constraint is. The constraint is the total amount of time that all of the investing partners that exist today have to meet founders is the ultimate constraint. And when you add more investing partners, meaning you add more rolling funds or syndicates or traditional funds, you're adding, you're increasing that, uh, the, the total amount of time that people have who are making investing decisions uh, for founders to meet. So the constraint here isn't that the creativity is constrained. The constraint actually uh, are the number of uh, VCs available at pre-seed and seed. And so I think back at 10x uh, and 50x, and we would then maybe start seeing the limits of human creativity. But even then, I would never bet against human uh, creativity, to be honest. Um, I'll always, uh, I always lean towards it. And, and I think we, we want to see more capital growth go towards you know, early stage companies um, and uh, you know, with pre-seed, seed stage, when the founders have an idea and they just want to uh, rally the initial round together. We think that there's just so much more. There's just so, so much more there. I really like that framing um, because it's it's very easy to um, to kind of fall into that traditional adage and actually not think from a first principles perspective. But a lot of the themes we've been talking about in the conversation of Loke have been, you know, your perspective effectively of, you know, the, the traditional concept or structure of a venture fund is actually not that old, right? And so the whole concept of a rolling fund is even, you know, if we apply software onto it, you know, how can we rethink the structure? And I think it's the same concept, which is effectively you know, if we're applying software or we're scaling those constraints, right, like time, for example, um, what are the downstream implications then, you know, on the ecosystem? You, you, mentioned, um, you mentioned that kind of the markets are, you know, effectively hotter than ever and there's more activity than ever. And, you know, I've anecdotally, as, a, as an investor, seen that quite a bit. Deals are getting done faster. Um, there's certainly more leverage on the founder side. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's two sides of that and it's probably a separate, uh, separate conversation, but what I am curious to get your perspective on, especially because Angelus is, is pretty renowned for really looking at this from a data driven perspective is talk to us a little bit more just around, you know, the themes of activity and what you are seeing from, from the aggregate data that, you know, Angelus Venture has exposure to. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say the overall themes <clears throat> that we are seeing is uh you know right after COVID hit we did see a um you know the we, we did see data that supported uh the uh the, the the sort of conversation that was happening around 
VCs are doubling down in their existing portfolio. Uh, companies were looking to raise quicker, even if it's on a down round. So we did see uh, some mark, markdowns, markdowns just meaning like down rounds um, of people just like raising capital quickly or flat round. And this was like post, right post COVID and the stock market belting. And then we saw this phenomenal rebound. Um, and by phenomenal, I just mean it was really, really phenomenal rebound of of uh, companies really just from all sorts of industries, but definitely uh, definitely uh, tackling remote work and and really all of the new problems that we're now facing as uh, as consumers or businesses. And so we did see a phenomenal rebound of activity there, um, and especially at the early stages, pre-seed and uh, and seed stage. Um, and the you know this the super interesting thing is we've sort of hit a massive dislocation in society today, right? Like almost instantly uh, what's happened is uh, we've had everything come to a crawl and people are stuck at home, uh, giant pandemic, um, and of course, uh, social unrest and all of that. And so almost instantly we're in a world where new uh, problems have come about that don't have solutions yet. And what, what's happening is founders are rushing uh, to build these solutions that don't have any leaders and they don't have, it's all net new, you know, net new problems. E-commerce has been accelerated by many, many years. And so what's happened is almost instantly we've hit this dislocation, which really did make it, uh, does make it the best time to start a company is now. Um, and actually it will be for the many, net, for, the, for the foreseeable future, at least for the next uh, three to five years, because we have all net new problems uh, that we're now facing as society, but not just society, but also as the world. Not only that, more and more people are coming online. So the markets are much larger than ever, than, than, than folks even anticipated. And so what used to be uh, you know, uh, uh, common wisdom in, in, in tech around a company uh, probably can get to a billion or two billion is now they're 10 billion or 20 billion. So what we're finding is, the, is that the software markets are also larger than they ever have been. And we're also seeing that lead to a rush into early stage. Um, and of course, the last piece is you just look at the stock market um, and you just see that really, if you take out the uh, tech companies, the top tech companies in the stock market, returns are actually pretty bad. Um, those those uh, non-tech companies are not recovering. It's really tech that's leading the way. And so that's also leading to a gold rush uh, of a mentality of companies going public and I don't mean gold rush in a bad way. I mean, in a, in a, in a very a positive way that these companies are now realizing that the public market's actually going to welcome them. And so you have this rush of companies going public, which is also driving more liquidity uh, for LPs and investors that invest in the early stages. And that's going to get recycled right back to the uh, 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 right back to early stage venture. And so we are in a very, very unique time. And we're seeing all of this in our data right now that we're just massive acceleration in venture. Uh, a large number of deals getting done. Uh, all of these are new problems that customers are facing and founders are rushing to solve. Uh, so definitely a very, very exciting time. And so what are the implications of that, right? So you, you guys have three products today, right? There's obviously mm -hmm. products in the AngelList portfolio. I know we started out the conversation, you were mentioning you know, some exciting things and such are coming down the pipe at a high level, right? Without getting into those specifics, how do you think about leveraging, really capitalizing on this unique moment in time based on the products that you know you guys already have and, and what comes to be on the horizon? Yeah, for us, our number one focus is on 
uh, adding more investors, more credible investors um, into the ecosystem through rolling funds or syndicates or traditional funds. And what that really means is when we add more, um, more, more of these funds into the ecosystem and more VCs into the ecosystem, more early stage companies will get funded. And so that is our number one focus right now is to scale that up. And then of course, what that enables for us is we can actually help drive more capital to these funds because we have a very large LP base on the platform. Again, they're all engaged through software and we can help uh, drive capital to these funds. In fact, uh, more than 50% of the capital on the Angelus Venture platform is actually, uh, is actually sourced because of Angelus. These are our LPs that we've brought to the platform and they're investing in all these different funds because these LPs are looking for great investments. Um, and so that's really the second part of it is scaling the capital. So we're in this like cycle right now of massively scaling rolling funds, scaling capital, going into these funds. And then of course, the key link here is uh, all of these rolling funds are investing in all of these startups, all of these great early stage startups. And as we start linking it together and you can kind of think about the common thread there, uh, which is the money flow and, and uh, sort of the financial products that we're very good at, you can sort of think that you, know, you can you can see how that connects into a suite of products that rule out for startups. And we are in the early stages of that. We're going to have something to announce very soon, um, but we're really going to lean into what we're really great at and lean into what our, our, un, uh, our differentiated um, uh, position is in the ecosystem, be able to serve startups and founders uh, as they're starting on their journey with their with their companies. In the effort to expand the LP base and, and, and the kind of credible investor population, how have you guys internally thought about the state of where accredited investor you know regulations are right now? It's, it's well intentioned, but obviously, right, it dramatically bars involvement, right, which is what mm -hmm. venture is all about, right. So I'm sure you have a perspective. How how do you think about just kind of where we are with accredited investor regulations, and if you have a perspective on how that framework could be better, you know, what would you suggest? Yeah, I, I would say we're we're in a place right now with those regulations where you know those regulations came about with the right intentions uh, when it first came about, um, which actually dates all the way back to the 1930s. Um, and over time, uh, different regulations have come, you know, been added on top of it. So it th those regulations had very good intentions, and we're just in a different world now. And you know, the SEC has been very actively actually uh, thinking about different ways in which they can update those regulations. And we've seen a lot of activity recently. So I'm very hopeful that th they are making the right moves. The, the key thing, uh, you know, the, the key way we think about it is when you go to invest in venture um, at the early stages, you do want to protect people uh, if they're only investing in, uh, if they're non-accredited, if they're only investing in one or two companies. Because uh, the characteristics of early stage venture is that if you only invest in one or two companies, you have a very high chance of losing your principal, right? Losing everything that you've invested. Um, because early stage venture, it follows a power law where you do wanna invest in um, uh, a large number of credible deals. By large, I mean more than 10 or 20 incredible uh, pre-seed or seed companies. And then one of them will be this massive power law. That's the case of all of venture, by the way. And so our view is if you're, uh, you know, if you're investing in only one or two companies, then uh, you know, it's definitely no place for unaccredited because you could lose your, you know, your entire capital. Um, but if you're investing into a fund that will give you exposure uh, to that portfolio of companies, then we think it's actually a great investment. 
Uh, and, you know, we do actually work, we, we, we work very closely with the SEC, with their policy team. Uh, in fact, I was actually, uh, I was in Washington earlier this year, uh, and we were talking about uh, how we think about venture, what we're seeing, and what it means to provide safe uh, access to the retail investor, the non-accredited, to the asset class. And we had some, you know, we, we actually were aligned on a few different ideas uh, but generally, our view, at least at Angelus Venture, is that as long as you're getting exposure to a portfolio, and that portfolio comes from a credible venture fund, we think it's a great investment, and we think people should do it. If you're only going to invest in one or two companies, and you're going to pick, a uh, vast majority of the people uh, should not be doing that. Uh, to be honest, uh, for non-accredited, like they should not be doing that because they can actually lose the principal. So that's how we think about it. And we've actually published uh, 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 several papers around this concept of the uh, early, it's, it's a very interesting, early stage venture can almost be its own asset class in terms of how you approach it and how you approach investing into that asset class. Alok, as we, as we round out the conversation, I, I, want, I want to get your reflections on, you know, what transparency personally means to you, and, and you can speak from an angelist venture perspective as well, but I want, I want you to reflect and, and give us a perspective on what transparency means to you and why you believe it's so important. And, and the reason I ask that question is because at the ethos of everything uh, that you guys are doing, it's fundamentally with this ethos of transparency and then, you know, a secondary, you know, democratization, right? So talk to me a little bit more about, you know, that concept and, and what it means to you and how it, um, how it inculcates throughout the organization. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say transparency within the organization to us means um, everyone having uh, full context on what we're doing, why we're doing it. Um, and so everyone is actually enabled to make great decisions. And ultimately what matters is as a company, we come together to serve our customers. And so the way I think about transparency is making sure that everyone in the organization has all of the context they need um, in order to uh, make great decisions and have great judgment in the company. And then what it means externally to me is actually what we saw with rolling funds. Um, we, you know, uh, when, uh, when we launched it and then of course, when it went through the whole uh, explosion on Twitter, uh, there were a bunch of questions and all these side conversations. And I, I sat there for several days actually uh, commenting and uh, transparency to us really just meant listening, uh, being, being very transparent about what it is we're doing, how we thought about it, and you know where we fell short, where we didn't. Uh, for example, we had to do a couple of revisions on our pricing until we really got it right. And we, we really listened to the community and our early customers, and we got to an amazing place now where we got our pricing on rolling funds just right. Um, on top of that, uh, there were a bunch of questions around how it works, the structure and all of that, and we very quickly provided all of that context. And then something amazing happened. The community wrote all of our resources, uh, which is so cool. I mean, we of course have our own, but we link to some of the community resources uh, on, our, on our website now, because they're so good. In fact, I'm now getting, uh, you know, I, when I started and I was, I was on sales calls, uh, getting, uh, getting folks to start rolling funds, it would take me multiple sales calls. And then it would take me one sales call and then now we actually have people saying, hey, I've read everything online about it. Here are the things I read. I'm super excited. Can you just send me the LOI? I'm ready to go right now. And so it was so fascinating to do this all in, in, a, uh, in a public fashion, super transparently. And we really did see a massive change in how 
quickly folks educated themselves and then showed up on our doorstep wanting to start a rolling fund. So that's what it means to me publicly is when you, you know, when you can do it in an authentic way, you can really have that community rally behind you. And that's basically what's happened. I went from having to answer all the questions uh, that came up to now folks were taking what I was answering and then answering it to other people. So it was, it was just like fascinating to watch that happen live uh, in real time uh, very, very quickly. Well, look, this was, this was a ton of fun. I, I really enjoyed the way that you, you teed up a lot of the underpinning kind of points in, in this conversation and related them back to really democratizing access, you know, uh, removing friction and really taking a software, you know, first principles approach. So really excited to see some of the, some of the announcements that are going to come out of Angelus Venture, you know, later this year, early next, as, as you guys continue on that mission. So thanks so much for taking the time. Really, really enjoyed having you on. Likewise. Thank you for, thank you for having me.